and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to women at the top of their respective games about their passions, their battles, and what makes them tick. Today, I'm joined by Dame Helena Morrissey, the Head of Personal Investing at Legal and General Investment Management, the global fund manager which has nearly a trillion pounds of assets under management. In her career so far, Helena has not only succeeded in carving out her own path to success, she has also managed to change the working environment around her. She is the founder of the 30% Club, an initiative encouraging chairman of major UK companies to aim for 30% of women on their boards, was appointed a dame in the Queen's 2017 birthday honours list for services to diversity and financial services, and also found time somewhere along the way to have nine children. Now, Helena, to start, I thought it'd be good to talk us through how you got to where you are today. You described in your childhood that you were a manic brownie. Yes, I was always a bit hyperactive. I think I was just made like that, to be honest. There's nothing to explain it. And I didn't know what I wanted to do in life, but I had gone to comprehensive co-educational school. My first experience of how being a girl might be a disadvantage or at least make you different was being the only girl in my all-male maths class, further maths class as well, in my sixth form years, which was quite um, a testing experience for me. In reality, I wasn't that great at maths, to be honest, which makes it sound a bit masochistic as well. But I then went and read philosophy at university, went to Cambridge University and fell into finance, really. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left and friends of mine, mostly men actually, encouraged me to apply to the city. And I just really enjoyed the people that I met and accepted a job at Schroeder's. And before you got to university, it's safe to say that you weren't the child of, of a tiger mum. No, um, both my parents are teachers. My sister is a teacher, very much a, you know, educator's background. And yeah, they, they allowed me to really, I suppose, set my own agenda as a child. I, I must admit, I must have driven them mad in my quest to beat the brownie record, you know, the most badges in the region. But, but apart from, actually, to be honest, they, they would stop me from working sometimes because I I was a bit of a workaholic even as a young girl and they would stop me. I would have this awful habit, which I'm embarrassed about to admit now, of sort of carrying a book around when we went shopping or something. I've learned not to do that now and I'm much more frivolous. But yeah, they, they were very relaxed and just and, and encouraged me to kind of be what I wanted to be. Just before we get to kind of university and obviously choosing to do finance, you went to a comprehensive school and you've described your time there to almost as hard knocks in a previous interview and a place where you, you kind of grew to be resilient. Do you think that major experience? Or? I think it was a, a big part of my, my background and how I've learned. You have to be quite tenacious, I think, in business to get anywhere. And I certainly, my school was in, in no way a sort of environment where, well, for example, I would be, I would describe what happened to me as being teased. Today, it probably would be bullied a bit. I was a bit of a sort of scrawny, gawky teenager, very serious minded. Most of my peers were not. And to boot, I was the uh, first person in the alphabet in the whole year group, which was 180 people and it meant that on any occasion my name would be read out first which was quite mortifying in many respects and also if something would go wrong I would be the one that would be going wrong you know getting going to collect something or whatever I would be the setting the agenda so I did learn I think just how to overcome what might not be in themselves individually big deal negative experiences but just how to sort of pick yourself up and carry on and I think that's pretty important in life generally. And then moving to university, so you got into Cambridge University, which I guess in that era some people still still see as backward could be an exaggeration, but not you know a university of full diversity. How did you find your experience there? 
Well, I mean, to, to get in, I mean, my school hadn't sent anyone to Oxbridge for several years. And then one of the things I learned was how you can spur each other on, because I think it was five of us went off to Oxford or Cambridge in the year, my year. And then when I was there, actually, philosophy, which is often more often studied at Oxford, but it's quite interesting, the Cambridge course, and you can do it just philosophy, you don't combine it with something else, attracted a very diverse group of people. And mostly there was only one philosophy student at each college. And it meant that one had a automatic sort of network across Cambridge because you know I think a lot of people stick to their peers doing the same subject in their college at least for a while until they find their feet whereas I was sort of forced to go out and about most of my tutors were well they were all spread as well all over the campus or all over the town so I think that was a real help to me but but definitely there were they were mixed by socioeconomic background by gender by sexuality by just kind of the personality and that and that was great. And I'm a philosophy graduate myself. All the best people are, obviously. <laughs> Anyone in this podcast has to be. <laughs> Shortlist. Yeah, that was the uh, test, you know, exactly. to be a philosophy graduate. But I have to say, when I look around what my fellow colleagues are doing, perhaps our salaries reflect this, but none of us are really in finance. So how did you then get to that point? Mm. So I had tried doing the long vac term in law. It came as you can do the six weeks in the middle of the summer to experiment with another course, and I hated it. I'm afraid I was hopeless because, of course, I was at that stage, you know, taught to question everything. And, of course, law, at least when you're learning it for the first sort of few decades, it seems, you have to do it by rote. So I, I didn't, that didn't work out for me at all. But what my friends had rightly identified was that I loved numbers, I loved language, I loved speaking to people and communicating, and I also wanted something that was intellectually stimulating and I really genuinely didn't know what I was letting myself in for but sort of tagged along and went to the interviews and in my interview with Schroders which was then very much a merchant bank it was a man and a woman and the woman particularly was pretty inspiring she was very senior in really venture capital not something that I've gone on to do but you know she I was suddenly thought actually I could do that at least I'll try it and then I was asked to go to New York for a couple of years almost immediately after joining Schroeder's, which with hindsight was, again, a wonderful opportunity, a bit of a breakthrough moment for me really early on in my career. And again, it was a very energising experience. And then, of course, you get, if you enjoy something, you tend to be better at it, and then went from strength to strength, although not without setbacks along the yes, way. Yes, so <laughs> it was all going very well at that you'd just been to New York. And then you probably encountered, if you could say, your first setback when you became pregnant with your first child. Yeah, and I mean, I was the only woman in a team of 16 bond fund managers, fixed income fund managers, and perhaps I should have seen it coming. But when I returned from maternity leave, and I'd taken about and five how months. How old were you at this point? I was 25 years old, and I'd taken about five months off. And when I returned, my return coincided exactly with the moment when you were sort of expected to get the first promotion, go from being a graduate trainee to not being a trainee anymore. And I didn't get it. And I asked my boss, obviously he was a man, because all my colleagues were men, what I was doing wrong, what areas of my performance I need to improve. And he said, oh, no, there's no doubt over your performance, but there is a bit of doubt over your commitment with the baby. Now, no one would ever say that now, but I am in some strange way slightly grateful that he was so overt about it because I knew where I stood then. I was not expecting that to be the answer. I, I genuinely thought there must be something I needed to improve. And it was a bit of a shock. I was somewhat confused, um, just because up until that point in my whole life, it just seemed that, you know, you just worked hard and you were quite good at something and then the rest would follow. But 
early enough in my career to learn the lesson that that's not necessarily how things work, particularly with careers. And I think all careers are labyrinths rather than ladders. Everybody has twists and turns, and I'm just grateful that that particular setback was so early and gave me a real visibility into the struggles that women can have and much greater struggles than I've had. Because in a way, that setback then became quite... It opened a new opportunity to you, didn't it? Undoubtedly, because of course I had to make a decision and it wasn't an overnight decision. I did enjoy working there, but I looked around me and I realised that, you know, and the place has changed dramatically since. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to insinuate in any way that Schroeder's today is like it was then. But I realised that it was a, a, but going to be an uphill struggle, that the whole culture was not really set up for me to thrive. It was set up for other people to thrive, but not for me. And I, so I became receptive to opportunities, best way to put it. But having my first child, I think for any woman, it's a, you know, it's a big change in your life. And so I didn't immediately, I didn't sort of storm out of the door. And then I was headhunted to join Newton Investment Management and actually by somebody whose surname was also Morrissey. And I'm now I think it was absolutely no relation. And that's my husband's name that I took when we married. And I think maybe he just called me because he'd come across this Morrissey and the bomb markets and there was an opening. But anyway, whatever the provenance of that, I then really lucked out. I realised then I needed to join a firm where culture was the most important so that took you to Newton and yeah. you found, I mean, you've read about this in your book, A Good Time to Be a Girl, but that was where I guess your career started to really flourish because of the environment. Yes, and the whole investment process was built around the whole concept way ahead of its time that actually you need multiple perspectives to come to the right decision. And so difference was welcomed. And for a variety of reasons, Stuart Newton, who'd founded the firm, effectively became my mentor after I'd been there for about a year. And I reported to him and I would have to go and sort of explain my thinking each day, uh, which in some ways could, you could argue was a bit patronising, but it wasn't really because in, it gave me the chance to spend time with him and he's a great investor and very much a lateral thinker. And so, and then of course as I became more confident because of his tutelage really, then I A, became better at my job and B, got asked to do more things. I took on more responsibility. And what I really learned from that was that being true to myself it's such a cliche really but being true to myself being who I was rather than just trying to sort of fit in to you know the environment just because there were certain rules that had to be played by I was much better at my job and then that's what I encourage that's why I say don't lean into what's already there try to change it and eventually you got offered a very big promotion which I think has and I don't think it's just women but you did have doubts about taking initially well, I uh, on the sp- uh, probably after <laughs> it was a very non-textbook promotion. I had been offered the role of the chief investment officer at Newton when we'd had some departures after the firm had been acquired, um, and I had said yes initially. And then my colleagues had actually told me that they weren't sure that I was the right person for the job. And to be honest, their their concerns were valid because most of the firm's assets were in equities in the stock market and that wasn't my investment experience so that was a fair point but actually during the conversation that I'd asked them to sort of tell me why they didn't want me to take the role one of them said oh well it's been very brave of Helena to gather us together to you know hear why we don't want her to be the CEO but actually she's a great leader and we should what about being the chief executive officer and all I knew at the time was a more senior job um, it's a more senior job but also it's I mean, I was a fixed income fund manager and to go from that without management training and without sort of anyone's telling you what job entails. I mean, it was a bit of those leap before you look kind of moment, which is something I advocate 
for I mean we women tend to overthink things but I did certainly not overthink that one and I do remember calling Richard my husband and saying well I'm not going to be the chief investment officer anymore I'm going to be the chief executive officer and he said well what does that entail and I said I'm not sure I really don't know but actually made me it showed me as well and it's always been a principle which I've ended up living my life even though I didn't decide to do this, that actually we can take on a lot if we're open-minded and if we can accept that we will fail along the way. And I made some terrible mistakes in the first few weeks and months and probably much later on as well. But it was a great learning experience. It was a making of my career. And, you know, I did have a mandate to lead. And that was that enabled me to achieve certain things there. Just to make us feel a bit better about where the rest of us are, what was your worst mistake? <laughs> well, I made so many, in honesty. Um, but, I mean, to be honest, it, one of the ones that I, I still wince about to this day was, I think it was the second day of my job, I took a call from a tabloid newspaper, and they were chatting to me about my vision for the firm, and actually I, I was very tentative because, of course, I was not quite sure what that was. I was still getting my bearings, and that process carried on for quite some time but then they started to ask me about my personal life and the fact that you know I had five children at the time who were very the youngest three had just turned one two and three and here I I'm afraid I sort of witted on a bit and you know felt quite happy chatting about my personal life and the next day there was this headline in in the paper billion dollar babe and although I'm vain enough, I must admit, to think, oh, that's, you know. And then I thought, no, no, that's awful. My husband said, none of that is true. Uh, My husband did point out none of it was true, none of those words. And it was was quite frivolous. And and that really set me back in terms of the eyes of my colleagues, quite rightly so, because, and of course, this was the days before anyone was trained on how to deal with the media and so forth. But still, I take responsibility for just being very naive about that. And that took some time to recover from. And And I don't blame my colleagues for that. That was my fault. But again, I... You, you know any mistake is okay I think as long as you learn from it so we've got to kind of how you got to you know where you are and before we kind of go into the lessons I guess it's just worth pointing out that we often talk about this dilemma for them which is you know family career and well you have nine children which I think is always brought up in any coverage <laughs> but you've had help there in the sense that your husband now is in effect a stay-at-home husband he, he yeah. was a journalist he, he still writes a bit but um do, do you think it is the case that one partner has to give or do you think it's possible to you know do that route of giving up you know well I was doing both I was once asked this question on air when I was (laughs) there to talk about something completely different by a female presenter and as I walked off set the producer said sorry that she kept asking about is it possible to have two high-powered careers and a family but she's just getting married next month and she and her fiance (laughs) are arguing over who's gonna not guilty so I think I think if you have nine children I'll be honest I mean we were both working full-time didn't have a lot of help paid help outside that uh, our own relationship until at that time until we had our fourth ch- child and at that point we were pretty much at breaking point not least because our third and fourth are very close in age and Richard had volunteered you know he said I'd love to have a f- sort of freer existence and he really wanted to spend more time with the family as well as not be sort of chained to a desk which you had to be in those days before the internet if one can believe such a thing existed but I do think that I mean, what I argue against is the idea that automatically a woman should be the one that would be taking either a back seat in her career or just assume that she would give up work. I think we are in an environment today, which wasn't the case when I my eldest is 26, that you should expect you know to dial up and dial down your career to reach a sort of agreement. Not that it's not binary in the same way that perhaps it was a while ago, and I do see much more fluidity around 
couples, whether they're, you know, heterosexual couples, same-sex couples, people are sort of sorting out how do they, you know, bring up families, earn enough money, develop careers, feel fulfilled. I mean, and that's a much healthier environment, I think. But we have to recognize that that's all changing and not sort of pigeonhole people into what our expectations from the past yeah, because might be. It's- because it's interesting because of paternity leave, it's obviously shorter, but we constantly hear that the actual number of new fathers who are taking up their right for paternity leave is very low. It would suggest maybe that hasn't spread across. Sorry, it's 1% of those who are eligible. And I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that financially you're disadvantaged as a father taking up parental leave compared with the mother. And it, it's a rational thing for a couple to say, well, actually, we'll, earn, we'll, we'll be better off financially if the wife or the mother takes the time. And I think that's the next leg of whether it's policy or companies stepping up to the plate on that. But that's one of the impediments. And then the other is societal men who have taken up share parental leave have said when they've did a survey that they actually their biggest fear was actually being perceived as less of a man and I feel a lot of men feel quite straitjacketed by societal expectations about their own role and the work that I tried to do on on furthering women's career I hope would end up allowing men to have more choice too. Now moving on to your career philosophy we mentioned this in the introduction but while you were at Newton you set up the 30% initiative so can you tell us a little bit about that and also you know, your motivation there? So I had for a few years been working on an initiative within the company on progressing women, but it wasn't really yielding much in terms of results. And I became quite disillusioned and was about to stop. And then I was invited to speak at a city event and we were discussing how little progress any of us were making. And I suddenly thought, well, we must just be doing something wrong. And I came away and realized that we were all, women were talking to women about women's issues, which was going to be limited in how far we could go. And I also realized that we weren't doing it in a business-like way. We were just being very much, you know, having inspirational speakers. And this is why it was so confusing. The feedback was always very strong from events, but actually nowhere, no one was getting anywhere. And I did a lot of reading and realized that there were a few things about how organizations behave and also about how to affect change. And I realized we needed to involve those in power more. It's so obvious now I think about it. But anyway, and the people in power were the men mostly. And then we also needed to have goals, targets. I'm very opposed to legislation quotas to achieve the change, but having objectives that we can measure is how we run businesses and how you measure the circulation of spectator and so forth you know everybody does has numbers so we needed so the 30 percent club idea was that we would have a, a target not a quota it was voluntary hearts and minds and also that the members of the club were the chairmen and at the time we launched in 2010 99 out of the 100 FTSE chairs were men so we we really needed their support and what happened was that the chairman got behind it, not all at once and not, you know, without any kind of hostility along the way. That was that was very much part of the early stages. But gradually they all got behind it and it was and it changed the conversation. It changed the narrative from this being a women's issue, a special interest issue, something to do with political correctness, to being a business issue. Everybody's and issue. it's also an interesting one because, at least from my perspective, it seems that it's one of those ones where by, in a way, picking a middle ground, you potentially annoy <laughs> two different groups because obviously there are some people who don't think you should have these targets because they perceive them as quotas whether or not they let name and others who would just say why not 50 percent yeah no and there was a lot of that I mean it felt often that we couldn't please anybody but I think the with lots of things I think actually trying to please everybody is a is a mistake you need to have a view and you need to then 
test your view and make sure you're not sort of undermining what you're trying to achieve by being wrong. So I, I wouldn't say one should be complacent about it, but you have to have a view. And I ended up, for example, refusing invitations after a certain point, not initially, but then about discussing quotas versus voluntary targets, because I said, look, I'd much rather spend my time actually helping to progress the issue and enabling more women to progress or enabling companies to improve their corporate governance and board representation composition. I don't want to spend time having a theoretical argument. I want to get on with it, which is sort of how the 30% club ended up, I don't think silencing critics, but at least winning people over. Actions and results speak louder than arguments and words. And then one of the things you mentioned earlier, but I guess one of the principles in, in your book is the idea that we women shouldn't have to lean in. There are other ways to achieve what you want in the workplace. And I guess there's lots of different views on this. But would you say there's a difference between women and men and their role in the workplace? Yes, I mean, I know it's become a bizarrely controversial topic to suggest that men and women can be equal but are different. I think on average, and I want to stress, I'm not saying that every woman is a certain way and every man's another way, but I think we do have slight differences in how we behave, how we interact. I have six girls and three boys. I have enough of a sample size, sometimes I say slightly jokingly, to be quite secure about this fact. But also, you know, look at any social situation or any business meeting, the women tend to gravitate to one end of the room and the men the other and everyone chats in a different sort of way or discuss, discusses things. And I think that's much better if we recognise our complementary skills and ways of approaching topics. And that's the, the whole point of diversity anyway. It's not that women replace men and just carry on as before, but we would contribute to better businesses, politics, society. And then on your children, just briefly, I, I saw that you said... With the boys, they were quite happy to go off to boarding school, be away from home, but the girls were more likely to go to a day school and kind of live in the family home. Do you think that was an example of the differences between the... Yeah, I mean, I think I think with, with that, there's partly to do with how the education system has sort of established itself, because our experience, our eldest daughter did want to board initially and didn't have a good experience, and I'm sure it's partly the school at the time, but also her and and us and so forth. But it seemed to me that there was a much more of a, a established, I want to use the word system, about boarding schools for boys. And, and to be honest, as a parent, I love having my children around and I don't particularly like the concept of boarding, but I can also see how, particularly when they're otherwise going to spend lots of time in London traffic and that actually it can be a fantastic sort of outdoor life as well. So there are all sorts of factors. But I do think education... The big difference that I have seen, which I feel potentially holds women back on going basis, is that girls' education is very focused around results, grades, exams, and boys is still, I think, much more or remains focused on the all-round skills, including more competitive team sports. And I think that's a problem. I think we miss out on life skills through that. I would say that my youngest child, who's nine... Her school is the first that has had really, really comprehensive fixtures between different schools and they take sport really seriously. And so I don't know if that's just luck, luck. Uh, finally, we've got one that does that. But but also it gives me hope because I think that's really an important thing that's missing from girls' education because careers are not about setting exams um, and enjoying the workplace is not about sort of, as I discovered, doing a good job and then being tapped on the shoulder and given a promotion and a pay rise. It's It's about strategizing. It's about you know, other skills, relationship building and so forth. And just go back to the workplace environment briefly, because 
obviously in the past year we've seen movements like the Me Too movement and that there does seem to be a slight sea change in the way that offices are conducted, the rules of you know engagement between colleagues. Do you think that these measures tend to be helpful to the goal of equality? I think often but not always I think we don't want to get to a stage where people are afraid to say anything to each other because it might be misconstrued and obviously when anything like the Me Too and the scandals that lay behind it sort of come to pass then people suddenly you know retrench sometimes and worry about being on the wrong side of things innocently and I think that would be a great shame I'm very much about men and women working together and I think we need to hopefully get to a point where you know we can recognize that it's I mean I've had male mentors be worried about mentoring young women because it might be misconstrued and that would be a great shame but I think that it is a moment to seize because the spotlight's on the issue we've been talking about gender equality and doing stuff for you know obviously we're celebrating the centenary of some women getting the vote in this country and it is time to kind of move on and be more ambitious not to be trying to I think understandably we've been trying to sort of squeeze women into systems of working that were set up before technology and before you know all the young people that I know want work with meaning and purpose and they want to work in an intelligent smart way not necessarily at the same desk and they're not wedded to a single company or even a single career and that's a huge shift and we need to work to a better system where we're allowing people to contribute what they can in, in a variety of ways and that's why I say don't lean in because I think leaning in to what is there already sort of perpetuates the system and it doesn't get things changed enough. I'm not, of course, saying that women shouldn't be ambitious and shouldn't sometimes recognise that you have to kind of just take the opportunity or fight back in a certain different way. But just leaning in for the sake of it to the status quo is not going to get us anywhere. On the thorny issue of the gender pay gap, <laughs> I was wondering what you thought of the government doing this gender pay audit now, which I think might, might soon be stretched to smaller companies as well. And critics say that it's not actually helpful because its use of data compares job you know job categories which means that it's not clear what you're getting from that I was wondering if you thought it was a helpful measure to addressing the problem well what I have seen since the mandatory requirement for the larger companies is a real desire on the part of CEOs to to crack the issue of gender equality in their workplace so I think it has been a galvanizing force Obviously, I think the muddle, you know, that it's not gender pay gaps are not the same as unequal pay, and that is not well understood. And then also this whole point that was discussed at length, you know, on the uh, infamous Kathy Newman Jordan Peterson interview, when, you know, is it about is it summary about is it capturing discrimination or is it a much more complex issue? And I believe it is a much more complex issue, and. That doesn't mean that obviously I say that it doesn't exist or it's not important. I obviously think it's, for me, it's become the shorthand for the progress that we still have to make to be equal. But it does need to be handled carefully and sensitively. And that's obviously not always the way people sort of plaster headlines of shocking data and so forth. And that's... And you, I mean, you've said that women shouldn't put up with unequal pay. So I was wondering, and if they do, perhaps they should leave. So I was wondering what your advice for getting a pay rise was, obviously asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, the, the the best thing is to have an ally who's more powerful than you, who can fight your corner, absent that or as well as that. I do say, look, obviously there is legislation that one can turn to if you discover you're being discriminated against and paid unequally in terms of doing the same job paid less than a male colleague but the first thing is to be 
quite charming about it. And I think we don't use that enough. You know, I've had the situations where, you know, I've gently pointed out, you know, surely that must be wrong, that there must be a mistake here, because actually, I've done a great job, you've given me a great review, and, and the, you know, the pay reward pool is higher than last year, and yet you're keeping my uh, pay the same. And to point it out, not in a militant and aggressive way, at least in the first instance. And I have found that it gets great results. And usually people are quite embarrassed and say, I'm really sorry, I didn't think it all through. Sadly, one of the things I've realised is that often bosses at any level don't check across genders when it comes to the compensation. And I do because I'm a woman and I'm kind of very mindful of that. But I think often it's, it's, and I'm not making excuses, but it's not double checked. Now, finally, final section, we've managed to go so far without mentioning the B word, <laughs> Brexit, which dominates most spectator conversations. It's something that you touched on when you're talking about diversity in the workplace and why it's a good time to be a woman, because a lot of people associate Brexit along with Trump as perhaps a step backwards. But in a way, you're perhaps a unique voice in finance. There are more than we might believe in being a Brexiteer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I maybe naively, but I had taken the logical extension of the work I'd done on encouraging diversity in the boardroom to mean that diversity of thought on issues like the EU referendum was to be welcomed. And I wrote a piece in 2013, a few months after David Cameron's Bloomberg speech when he announced the referendum. And I felt that, you know, we should be at this stage reflecting on how the world was changing, the qualities that would be needed as a nation to succeed. And obviously, Dave Cameron himself has pointed out the competitiveness problems in the EU because of a number of the ways of operating, particularly sort of top down, one size fits all. And I was not expecting that to be a controversial view. I'll be completely honest. I thought that would be, you know, we would be having a sensible discussion, whereas obviously, it became very shouty very quickly and very um, confrontational, the whole run up to the referendum and subsequently clearly. And I think that is a, a real miss. And it clearly shows me as well that we're not extrapolating from the idea of having diverse boardrooms and businesses and more women in politics and so forth to actually thinking, well, actually, we need to em- embrace more viewpoints. I am a quite opposed to illiberal liberalism. <laughs> and I think there are a lot of people sort of sort of say, this is the only view you can take if you're a progressive thinker. And that is, to me, the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. And with where the government are at the moment in the negotiations, obviously you've had critics on both sides. Are, are you feeling optimistic about the current course? <laughs> no, not really. Um, I can't imagine that there's anybody who feels particularly optimistic about it. I would love to see, you know, I've, I've written a couple of pieces more recently, and I think alluded it to in my recent diary for The Spectator, about how many strengths Britain has as a nation. And we need to negotiate knowing our strengths and from a, from a position of strength. Nothing is over till it's over, as they say. And so therefore, I'm not completely pessimistic. But I do think it's very important that we recognise that people trade with us and ask our opinion about issues on a global stage, because we have something to offer. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. Now, perhaps on a more positive government note, (laughs) you've been involved recently with the Conservative launch to basically increase the number of female candidates in their list when it comes to candidate selection for Tory MPs. What drew you to that and what's the message you're trying to get Mm. out there? Well, in fact, I was asked to just be a guest speaker and give a business perspective because I think in a good way there is a desire 
I think from many parties to learn from some of the progress that we've made in business around encouraging women at least to have more opportunities even if it's very much unfinished and so I was asked as guest speaker for the announcement that there would be an an aspiration to have 50% men and women on selection lists for parliamentary candidates and I think it's been somewhat misconstrued because I mean, around 30% of the lists at present are women. And there were some interesting statistics shared by the party chairman, for example, that when men are interested in being on the list, they make an inquiry and fill out their forms within 48 hours. And when women go through the same initial process, it takes between six and 12 months. We also have heard that they when going around the country, women often say, well, why would you want me, someone like me to stand? Whereas that's not often heard from men. So I think there do need to be interventions, but this is not about a mandatory quota. This was about certainly how it was announced on the day. It was very much about a desire to have shortlists that were 50-50. And I think there is a need to accelerate change. I think at the moment we have a very divided country. We need to work hard to heal those divides. A starting point would be to have a a parliament that's better representative of society. But also, I do believe that women can sometimes, you know, operate in quite a collaborative, empathetic and sometimes kind way, less desirous of having sort of, you know, bun fights or (laughs) operating in a bear pit. And I think we need a different sort of politics to get to the, you know, have better debates have a better meeting of the minds on difficult issues. So I think it would be good for the country ultimately to have more female representation in Parliament of, from all parties. And on that basis, you know, I was I was happy to be there and, and I'm happy to do what I can to encourage women in business who might consider a career in, in politics uh, to throw their hat in the ring. But it wasn't styled as a quota or about displacing great men with mediocre women. It's about making sure that great women get a chance would you ever consider throwing your hat in the ring in politics? Well, I know there's been some speculation today that I was at the event because some they were trying to lure me. I, I you had them reach their target. And what I, I know they said, you know, we're trying to encourage women like Helena to stand. I thought, well, that's one way to pressure me on a, in a public forum. But Thanks, I, I want to do something with my life and I'm doing something with my life that is, you know, both, well, is hopefully economically useful but socially useful and at the moment I do feel because in my job at Legal in General which is a, a new role I am trying to engage the the nation or will be it's only just started trying to engage the nation to save and invest more including more women and to use my voice in business to hopefully help us join the dots over a lot of these initiatives and I feel that I have a strong platform as things stand to do that. Now we've nearly run out of time so I'm going to ask you two quick questions which is just firstly you have such a busy life what do you do for fun? So, well, your fun husband's for me a trained is, Buddhist yeah, priest. So, so yeah. does that chill you about? No, it's and also he has more recently re-embraced Christianity. So I wish to set the record straight on that one. It's uh, slightly confusing for everybody that he keeps restyling himself. <laughs> but he's always been a very spiritual person, always very much interested in religious philosophy, and so it, that's a common theme throughout his life. Well, I think just family time for me is is you know relaxation time and the most precious time and sometimes I think I am the one thing I wince about when I read profiles of me in the newspapers sometimes they give the impression that you know I'm completely well like I started by saying you know manic and actually I do try to be very much present in the moment and to be with my family and to you know chill out and enjoy each other's company because obviously 
in common with most human beings. That's the thing that I'm most, I, I love the most and I'm most happiest doing. And final question, why is it a good time to be a girl? So partly my optimism is because of the progress I've seen in my own career, but I do feel we're in the on the verge of a much bigger breakthrough if we can see see the opportunity. I think we are needing to have a big rebalance in society and that the opportunity lies because we have a convergence of you know technology enabling us to work differently, longer lives meaning career chronology is changing, and men wanting different things out of life too. But I think we women need to contribute to the next stage in our development, not sort of wait for it to happen. And that's why I say, let's let's change the system. Let's contribute to better ways of working and sharing responsibilities. I'm very optimistic that we know about the future for my daughters, but also for my sons. Thank you very much, Helena. Thank you. Thank you.